I really like this church. I know that people like me have to say that, but I, I really do. There's nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but I just wanted to tell you that. All right, we're, we're, if you've got your Bibles, open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Um, if you don't have your Bible or you don't have notes, um, feel free to jump in on the NBC app, which has uh, both right there uh, for you, and you could take stuff, uh, just take down the notes right as you go along, but we're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 2. We're, we're in this series called Better Together where we're asking the question, why do we do church anyway? Like, what's the point? And uh, we've just gotten through the first part of that, which is kind of highlighting the fact that um, we're commanded to in Scripture, uh, and, and we try to flesh this out in our mission statement. Our mission statement is that we're a community of Christ followers who are committed to being real with God. And we could do that outside of this place, no problem. But as a community, our community step to do that is to gather on a weekly basis where we get together and we gather because God is great and we gather because he created us for community. But we take another step and that's this next section, this next chapter really in Better Together is highlighting that, that the fact that we're also as a community of Christ followers called to being real with each other. So if the action step of the first one is, is to be here, to be present, and to even think about people in our world who aren't exposed to who Jesus is and find a way for them to come in, the second step is saying that not only did God create us for this gathering, but he created us to actually have an authentic relationship, not just with him, but with e each other as Christians. Um, and that's something that, that we have, something that God's put upon us. And so we see that fleshing itself out in Acts chapter 2. So as you're turning to Acts 2, let me just give you some backdrop on that. Acts is written by a guy named Luke. He's the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Uh, he was an analytical, scholarly type of indi individual. He didn't walk with Jesus, but he wanted to research Jesus and find out from the firsthand accounts whether or not he was true or not. So you've got someone who's going through all the homework of trying to interview people to find an accurate account. Luke's, Luke's account is phenomenal. But it, like, just, like any good account, it needs a sequel. And the sequel to the book of Luke is the book of Acts. Luke writes the book of Acts as somebody who is trying to say, okay, I just told you about everything about who Jesus is and what, that you need to know, what he accomplished on the cross in his resurrection, and in the book of Acts, I want to tell you what takes place after he rose from the grave. When this weird, awkward movement of people called, the, called Christians and the, the church gets launched. This religion, that, that's, that's weird because it's, it's not Judaism and it's not paganism. The Jews don't like the Christians because, well, because they're saying that Jesus is the Messiah and they didn't buy that. The pagans didn't like the Christians because they looked at Christians as atheists. They thought Christians were atheists because they didn't believe in lots of different gods. They believed in one and the, and the savior that they claim is the Messiah was someone who would do what no Greek pagan god would do, which is to come to earth as a man and die for mankind. It was just goofy. And so everything is against Christianity for working. It should not work. The movement should not work. And yet, whoosh, here we are 2,000 years later, and we're not worshiping Zeus. I mean, so boom. Um, you're the only service that heard that. I apologize. All right. But if you look in Acts chapter 2, what happens after the resurrection, Jesus goes to be with the Heavenly Father, and, and he says that I'm going to leave you with someone like me, just like me. And at Pentecost, Christians receive that person, and that person is the Holy Spirit. And this is great, because you could walk with Jesus, but you could also walk away from Jesus. The Holy Spirit was a promise that no matter where you went, you'd never be alone. The Holy Spirit would always be with you. And so this is a huge thing. It's Pentecost. So 
tons of Jews from all around the world, Africa, Europe. They're coming into Israel, into Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And it is at one of the celebrations in, in this particular room where the Holy Spirit is given to the disciples, to the early followers of Jesus, which is massively important and blows them away. When Peter and the disciples exit that room, there's a huge crowd of people that are mocking them. And these are people who are haters. They're not big fans of Christianity. Um, some of them are Jewish. Some of them may not be. But, they, but the one thing they had in common was Christians are goofy and this is a bad idea. Peter doesn't say, well, you know, you guys are probably right, but, you know, give us a couple of hundred years to figure out our theology and we'll make it compelling. He doesn't do that. He just says, listen, all of us are dead in our sin. We've crucified Jesus and you guys are guilty just like us. You've always rejected God. As a people, we've always rejected God. And Jesus, his own son, we rejected and crucified. This is on you. And then he gets to the end because he doesn't leave a diary. He says, but you can be rescued just like us. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, when it says this, with many other words, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. How many people? Three grand. That's like more than one grand. That's three of those one grands. 3,000 people. Now there's already like hundreds of people, four to 500 people who saw the resurrected Christ. So they, they believe in Jesus. There's other disciples that are in that. So let's just say, you know, somewhere in the 750, 800 range of people who are following Jesus. And now a bunch of skeptics who are anti-Jesus are now in the family. So you just tacked on three grand to that five, six, seven hundred people. And so now you've got this, this movement that's gone from zero to 60. It was this awkward outlier, and now it's an insider group where they're like, look, nobody accepts us, everybody rejects us, but the thing that we have in common is Jesus. And, and we're, we're coming from different parts of the world, but the thing we have in common is Christ. And, and this is huge, and, it, and it, it, all of a sudden, these people had something they didn't have before. They had a religion before. That, that's, and they had like practices and cool rituals and all that stuff before. The thing that they had that was new was this newfound community based in who Jesus was. And that community, community, that, just the sense of that, is something that people are still hungering for to this day. If you continue reading on, it goes like this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking, bread, breaking of bread and to prayer. Okay, so pause for just one second. That thing about everyone receiving the Holy Spirit and Peter like preaching boldly to that crowd and 3,000 people becoming Christians, I knew that story. And way over here, I also knew the story about this group of people that devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, blah, blah, blah. The early church. But my Bible has something, and your Bible might have it too, that makes it really awkward to read that. It's this big old bold thing that's right here. It says the fellowship of the believers. And what that tells you to do is mentally, as you get to the end of this passage, you're like, okay, pause, regroup. All right, let's read something else. And you start to read the next verse. If you've got that in your Bible, you could feel free to cross it out because that's not inspired by God at all. It's just like something to help us understand the flow of the passage. But it, it, it kills it, in my opinion. What we should do instead is read this. Those who accepted, verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about three grand were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Who's they? Those 3,000 people 
plus the hundreds of other people that were following Jesus already. So 3,000 plus people themselves were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread into prayer. Everyone, everyone who? Those three grand and everyone else that was following Jesus, they, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers, who? The 3,000 plus people from that day on, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every, every day they continued to meet together in temple courts they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. These people had a community. It was brand new. It wasn't Jewish. It wasn't pagan. It was this brand new community that defined them. And we're still hungering for community. People, uh, some commentators um, believe that we have a harder time with community today in our culture than ever before. I don't really buy that. I think every culture has had a handicap when it comes to true community, that kind of community. But people are noticing it and writing about it a lot right now. The Huffington Post talks about the value of community. Are we losing it? And they're like um, focusing in on, you know, whether it's gaming or technology or whatever else, that's the problem. And it sounded to me when I was like 14, 15 years old when they started saying that Nintendo was, you know, Satan's, I don't know, something or other. And I was just like, come on, Super Mario Brothers 2, let's get over it. The value of community, are we losing it? And this person comes to the conclusion it's not technology that's doing it, it's people and our, our response to it. The Washington Post talks about where goes the neighborhood. Consider our, how our definition of neighborliness has evolved. Once upon a time, being neighborly meant reaching out to the people who lived next door by, among other things, offering to watch the kids in a pinch. Now, being neighborly means leaving those around you in peace. And we're like, amen. That's the way it should be. If you see my car go into the garage and the blast shield come down, step off. You stay out of my yard. Keep your dog out of my yard. I'll put up fences to keep, because this is my fortress of solitude. I need my space. The world is crazy and stressful. I just want to be away from you people. People. Where goes the neighborhood? And again, uh, magazines like Entrepreneur um, talk about the fact that we have, even though Community has always been a handicap. We have a specific odd problem. And that is that in a world that is more connected, like right now, while I'm talking to you, I could text someone in Japan and they hear me immediately. We're connected. Right now, we're streaming to places all around the world. We, are, we have this connection. It's amazing. We have more ability to communicate and be connected than ever before, and we are more lonely than we've ever been. And this, this uh, entrepreneur magazine says the importance of face-to-face -face networking in a digital world. Technology makes meetings super easy, but there is no substitute for being in the same room. Why? Why? It's because each one of us has been created with a need not simply to gather and be in a, in a crowd, but to be face-to-face, -face, which is why this thing that we see in this passage is so phenomenal. This is Jesus's face-to-face -face strategy for his people, and we're talking specifically about church, and this is why at NBC, why we're big, big fans of groups at this church is because of this. Jesus's face-to-face -face strategy is accomplishing to do that. We're going to talk about three implications of that right now, and the first one is this. Jesus's face-to-face -face strategy moves us as a people from a crowd to a core. Take a look at verse 46 again. 
In verse 46, it says, every day they continued to meet together where? Where'd they meet? The temple courts. Why? Because there are 3,000 people. And some of you have nice houses, but there's no, no way that you're going to have three grand over for like a barbecue. That's not going to happen. I mean, that'd be an awesome party. But that's not going to happen. You're not going to have 3,500 people showing up and saying, let's just have a Bible study. No, it's not why they're meeting in the temple courts. One, because that was their typical practice to go to the temple and to pray. But now they're like praying, but they know who they're praying to. They saw him. And so this is like a different, it's like weird. Like we've done this our whole life and it's like, man, we're going to temple. But now it's like we're going and we know who we're praying to. We know what all the pastors have been talking about. And so now this is huge. So they're meeting in the temples because they fit. There's 3,500 people. Where are they going to meet? So they do what they know. We're going to connect with God and with each other on a crowd basis. But they don't stop there. Look what happens at the end of uh, 46. Let's just read the whole thing. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in where? Their homes. And ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Why didn't they just keep it in the temple courts? Like seriously, man, just keep church in church. Because they couldn't. They couldn't. They recognized that there was something in the strategy of Jesus that was pushing them from a crowd to a core. And this is something that God has done. If you look throughout the Bible, he's always done. He goes, he takes a group of people and he brings out of that crowd a core that can have face-to-face interaction. Jesus with his disciples, he preaches and he heals and he does an impact on massive scales. Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people, massive. But what does he do? He retreats with 12 so he can have face-to-face interaction with them. They knew Jesus. God became man, and he looked his friends in the eye, face to face. And on top of that, one of the things that we just see that's so amazing about Jesus, he kept kept doing that, and he kept orchestrating. That is something that his disciples should do. They should have face to face interaction. They should learn. And when you get into the book of John, Jesus says, you call me master. This is at the end of their three years of going through life together. You call me master, and that's appropriate, but I call you friends. Why does he call them friends? They could say the same thing about him. They had spent three years of face-to-face. Not a God who dropped off a, a, a leaflet or a tract or gave a, a podcast, but someone who engaged face-to-face. And that is something that then all of a sudden we see in this group them starting to do. They, they, they moved out of the temple courts and into homes. And when persecution hit and they could no longer meet in the temple courts, what were they doing? They kept moving in homes. When they got kicked out of Jerusalem and they're running all around the world to try to find a safe haven, what do they do? They keep on meeting in homes. Why? Because the value was not merely gathering. It was to have that face-to-face interaction. Now, here's the deal. One of the things I love about this church is what we do right in this setting when we are singing to him, when we're proclaiming the glories of God. That last song, I mean, come on, right? It was amazing. I mean, like people are, are tearing up, people are lifting their hands, people are like, I don't lift my hands. They're like, oh, I'm just gonna sing louder. And it's awesome and we're worshiping God and, and it's so great, right? But what was the person in the row behind you struggling with this past week? The person two rows ahead of you What is the thing that's just lifting their sails because it's finally happened in their life? We don't know. Because God has called us to gather. 
We do that. But he takes us from a crowd to a core. Jesus' face-to-face strategy also crafts a culture in that core of wholeness, that, that, that it's, it's whole. And then we see the, the DNA of that community in verse 42. Take a look at 42 again. Talking about this 3,000 plus people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And that's the DNA of this, this brand, this flavor of community. Why? Well, first off, they, they, were, they were committing themselves to the apostles' teaching. And here's what they weren't doing. They weren't saying, okay, guys, uh, we're having a Bible study. Turn to Acts 2 because we're living this out right now. And just, they weren't doing that. They had, they had copies maybe. They, they had someone from the synagogue could relay information about the passages. The apostles' teaching was them talking about what Jesus did, number one. And saying, okay, you guys weren't there, but there was this time where we were really hungry. We were like, we're like seriously hungry. And he takes like little bits of food. Like it wasn't even enough for us as the disciples, but then he made enough for all these, this huge crowd. It was unbelievable. I mean, like the only, when I'm thinking about it, the only word I can use is a miracle. It was miraculous. It was huge. And then he did this. And then they're teaching what Jesus did. But that's not all they were teaching. And we know that that's not all they were teaching because because the book of Acts and Luke records that when Jesus rose from the grave and he appears to the disciples, he taught them. And what he taught them was the, how the whole Old Testament, what they would call the Tanakh, how it all was pointing to him, to what he accomplished on the cross. And so now they're relaying to this new group of people, we're going to go through all of our, our, our passages that we've known from a kid, but we never fully got. I mean, now it's like, now we understand what that passage means. It was talking about Jesus. Now we understand what this is all about. It was pointing to him. Jesus was his own curriculum. He taught his disciples with his life, and then he taught them the scriptures through the lens of what he's accomplished. Jesus was their center. Food. They ate food. And, and in verse 46, when it says they broke bread in their homes and ate together, that word ate together, that phrase, doesn't mean they just ate together. It says that they ate meat together. So I don't know what you're doing in your small group, but upgrade. I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome. They ate together, okay? And, and, that's, and that's important because we think, oh, that's nice because um, you do that at parties. You eat. First century Hebrew mindset was radically different. If I have you over to my house, that means that I am saying to you, I'm going to treat you as if you're blood. You, we not, may not be related. We not, may not even be second cousins, but I'm going to treat you if I invite you into my house and I prepare food for you. No one's doing a Wendy's run here. Okay, this is stuff we are making for you. We're going to treat you like you are family. So now you've got 3,000 plus people that are totally unrelated to each other, diverse backdrops, everything else, and they're like descending upon these homes. <laughs> you're inviting them into your house and you're saying, look, I don't even know who you are, but we're going to start doing life together. I'm going to treat you like family. So you've got scripture, the reality of who Jesus is, Food, letting them say, we're going to be doing life together. We're not just simply showing up for a podcast. We're not simply showing up for a lecture, but we're doing life together. And prayer, because this is not an academic study of a holy book. This is talking to a God who really hears what we're saying. These groups, these small groups, revolved around the fact that they were, had God's word, doing life with God's people, and talking to a real God in their world. Robert E. Coleman, in his book, uh, The Master Plan of Evangelism, it's an old school book, but a classic. He says, not for, talking about this early church, knowledge was gained by association, 
before it was understood by explanation. Knowledge was gained by association before it was understood by explanation. In other words, if you really want to know God, you need to know God in community. You can't just get like a, a theology book and go into a corner and really understand God. If you want to understand God, you got to get around other people and do that type of journey together. Jesus' face-to-face strategy moves us from a crowd to a core, crafts a culture of wholeness, and then finally is intended to bring outsiders in. Look what takes place in verse 47. This group of people, as they're eating just we'll read 46 just for context. Every day they continued to meet together in homes and, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So in other words, this group didn't like get together and say, okay, it's so awesome that we're saved. I'm so glad it's you because I can't stand all the people in our neighborhood. Let's not tell them. Let's just keep going on this. We'll, go, we'll do vacations together. Christian. No. They took Jesus' words seriously. This was like, this is going out. And this is the amazing thing. Because we are currently in a culture that has a very biblical principle. And that principle is tolerance. I mean, it sounds like a dirty word sometimes to people, but it's like, it's a, it's a good biblical principle. Tolerance is good. The problem is when it's not connected or tethered to a reality found in God, it's just like, well, no, anything, whatever. You know, you, you hate women, that's fine. We're going to be tolerant to that. You, you, love the, you love someone over here, we're fine. We're tolerant with that. You, 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 don't, you love people of different ethnicities, you hate people of different ethnicities, we're tolerant with that. Well, of course, that's not true. Tolerance is goofy unless it's connected to who God is. And that's, that's the amazing thing about what happens in this this thing called the church, is that it is the most inclusively exclusive group ever. The openness is like any, this is not homogenized to one people group, one ethnicity, one nationality. It's not restricted to one moral class. Like I've accomplished this much morally, so I'm accepted into the group. All those things that divide us into tribes is not okay in this organization. This group of people actually says, no, you're from different ethnicities. You have different issues that are morally handicapping you. You, you, you come from different places. You have different walks of life. This is the one place where you're going to be united because the thing that unites you is not the things that, that unites you out there. Out there, you hang out with people who agree with you. You hang out with people who look like you. You hang out with people who, who vote like you. But in here... There's one thing that unites you, and that's Jesus. The one thing that unites you is not all those things that divide you out there. And that's, a, that's a tr- the terrible thing about today. In our current culture, as open and tolerant as we are, we are more divided, I believe, than ever before. We hate on people we disagree with, and we gravitate more into our tribes than ever before. What is the solution? That. A group where in spite of our differences, we gather here. If we actually really wanted to make people mad, we'd start to talk and say, let's pass the microphone. What do you think about this issue? Okay, go ahead, Rita. And then just keep on passing the microphone. We would see how different we are, right? And yet, listen to the voices lifted up to a Messiah who loves us and unites us. All the things that divide us out there, They're not checked at the door. They're put in perspective in here from the one thing that makes us who we are, Jesus our Savior, and surrendering to him. And here's the thing. 
It's very easy to come here on a weekly basis and be in this room and have um, our hearts just be anonymous and not surrendered. It's very difficult when we go from this crowd into a core where all of a sudden we have face-to-face interaction because in those interactions we start to see our backstories and that's where we get to learn how to do life together and be followers of Jesus who, who, are, who are taking his words seriously and understanding the ups and downs of life and doing that with other people. To understand that, that if we get close enough, we can actually have people who have doubts and questions about faith express those. People who are close enough to actually hear what has happened in each other's story. I want you to hear one person's story of someone in our church named Kenji. Uh, take a look at this. My name is Kenji Kaneko. Uh, for many, many years, I was known as Kenji Gallo. Uh, for 20 years, I was in the Mafia. I was part of two families, part of the Los Angeles family and part of the Colombo family, which is one of the five families of New York. My dad said to me, hey, I got you a job. And um, I took, he gave me the address, and I had to take two buses after school to get there. And I remember the first day I got to the job early, and the doors were locked, so I was just sitting outside. And not long after that, a guy pulls up in a, I remember this, Cadillac, kind of like James Conn and Thief's Cadillac. And he opens the door, and he gets out, and he's wearing some silk slacks, got some nice shoes on, and a gold Rolex. And he walks up, and he's like, hey, I'm Joe. And I thought to myself, this is exactly what I want to, this is, I want to be just like him. And I started realizing as soon as I was in there, that um, these people are not normal people that go places. And I soon learned that they were all, Joey was a mastermind of a huge criminal cocaine enterprise. And there were all those people were like uh, cocaine dealers, smugglers, um, mob guys. And it was kind of like, this was their hangout. Once I found out that that was where the hub was, I started to get to know everyone. Then they're like, oh, this kid, this kid will do whatever. Um, they used to have me go out and do stuff, and I would do things for them to make extra money. And then as I got older, you know, the crimes would increase. My main goal from uh, about age 13 on was to advance myself and make money at any cost. Um, at the beginning, I was involved in the drug trade. I was involved with uh, cocaine through some guys with the Medellin cartel. And then in 1996, I kept... I kept wanting a change. I wanted to get out, but you just can't quit. It's just impossible. You, you can't. You go in alive, you go out dead. One day I got a call from a friend of mine's grandmother, and she told me that the FBI had been to her house looking for me. And I go, give me the name. And so she gave me the name. She kept the guy's card. And then he wanted to know where I was, and I happened to be in the East Coast, and I was gone. I was in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, visiting some other mom guys. And, uh, and the whole thing, he said, I just want to talk to you. The whole time I kept thinking, this guy's going to arrest me. I'm arrested again. It hasn't even, I'm out on bail for another crime, and I'm still going to get arrested again. So I just thought about it, thought about it, three weeks. And then finally I called him. Uh, the day came. So I got there. There's two FBI agents waiting outside this deli in Costa Mesa. We walk in, and we turn this corner of the door. And at this long table was eight other FBI agents. So I have one in front, one back. That's ten. Uh, he said, you know, we've been watching you since you're about 18 years old, maybe before. And they said, you know that you're going to end up murdered, or you're, we're going to get you, and we're going to give you life in prison. That's, this is your options right here. And I said, yeah, I know. This is, I know where my life, I know. I accepted that as my fate as part of the life. And so he told me, 
well, I'm here to give you some options. And I go, well, I don't want to talk, tell my friends. And they're like, we don't care about your friends in LA. Not at all. They said, we just want to, we want you to do, get intel for this, gather, gather intel. Um, take pictures, wear a wire, and do all this stuff. And then I said, well, what do I get out of it? They were like, the only thing you're going to get out of this is a fresh start. That means when you're done with this, new Kenji, day one, just like you were born. No more record, no more nothing. You're, you're free. And I had, at that point, I had been on probation or parole since I was 13 years old. And they're like, do you want to think about it for a couple of days and get back to us? And right then, something in my head said, this is the best deal you're ever going to get. And so I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And they're like, that quick? And I said, yeah. They're like, do you want to talk to anyone? And I go, there's no one I could talk to because I'm just, they'll just tell me and I'll get killed. I mean, my lawyer is crooked. And I go, yeah, well, how long is it going to last? And he said, six months to a year tops. Well, eight years later, I'm still wearing that wire. And so I got transferred from the LA family to the New York Colombo family, and I lived in Brooklyn. And I used to consider myself really lucky in that life. Everyone did. They, they said, like, Kenji's a really lucky guy. Some of my friends got shot. I never did. Um, I would leave right before like something like that would happen. And so I considered myself lucky. And now looking back, I realized that um, God had a hand in my life to steer me to where I am. I kept thinking that when I got out, I would just make a lot of money, then I'd be happy. And uh, I kept, like, I still had the mafia attitude, but I just wasn't a criminal. And so when I got out, I started a mortgage company. I did well. And then uh, I got into, um, to, I was a commodities trader for uh, one of the MF Global companies. I did really well. I started training. Um, I used to train fighters, and I've always trained in MMA and jiu-jitsu and stuff, and I'm good with uh, physical exercise, so I decided that uh, I would train actors and actresses. And I just started, the more people I trained, the more I was around that lifestyle, I started not liking it and not see, and I, I didn't like the where I was going. And no matter how much money I made or what I did, you know, I was never happy. And I kept thinking in my life, like, something's missing, it's not working. I met my wife, Anne, and there at the gym. I, be, like, I met her at the gym, but she wouldn't talk to me. And then I met her outside the gym, and then she talked to me. But, um, and she had, you know, her parents were missionaries, and she had been, uh, I mean, she came to NBC here, Manuka Bible, when she was uh, a, a kid. But she had gone away from the church. One of my friends, he's a good friend of mine today, he's, uh, he, was, uh, he worked right for the Medellin Cartel for Pablo Escobar. Uh, he ended up getting arrested in the early 90s with, for selling 10,000 kilos of cocaine. And he was going to sell more, but they couldn't get a truck big enough. He went to prison. He ended up, I think he got like 25 years to life. But in that period of time, he became a Christian. Uh, he became a minister inside there. And he got out after 17 years. And his whole life changed. And before I became a Christian, I had, he called me. And then he said, hey, what's me? I was kind of apprehensive because, you know, I, I was thinking maybe, you know, he's Colombian. He's probably going to want me to do something and make an offer and I'm not going to be able to resist it. We both met there and I, he pulled up in a truck and I pulled up in a truck and we looked at each other because back in the day we used to come in uh, Corvettes to sushi at night, you know, and both of us pull up in trucks and pretty much work clothes and uh, I look at him and then we sat down and as soon as we sat down he told me, oh, you know, just to let you know I'm a Christian now. And I thought to myself, oh. He's gonna, here comes the hard sell. 
And then he really never brought it up after that. And then he just talked about how his life changed. But even then, I didn't think that that life was for me. I had always thought that being a Christian meant you were like weak. And, I'm, and I even saw guys that quit the life. I actually saw people, that, two guys that I know that quit the life and um, found, found God and, and changed their whole life. But I thought, oh, that's great for, for him, but it works, but it doesn't work for me. I'll just be a good person but and not do anything wrong, but everything will be fine. But I'm st I was missing something. And then one of my clients at, at the gym, one of the guys I trained sent me, he asked me for my address and he sent me a Bible. And um, I lived in a gated house, and so the UPS guys or the guys would just throw the box over the gate. And I had a big, big black lab, and she would tear up anything. Oh, it's a present. It's for me. I came home that day, and I'm walking up my, my long stairs to, up to my front door, and I see all this stuff shredded, just stuffing and all kinds of stuff. And I was like, oh, box, something, whatever it was, it's not here anymore. And when I got to the top of the door, she's laying right there, and against the door, without even a scratch on it, was this Bible. I opened it up, I looked at it, and it made no sense to me at all. No, it was just like gibberish. So I took it, put it on my shelf next to my other books, and that was pretty much, you know, I didn't think about it. And then not even a week later, an actor that I was training, uh, he said to me, hey, do you want to go out to lunch? Do you have time for lunch? And, I, and then he says, hey, I want to talk to you about something. And I go, okay. And he goes, you're a real spiritual guy. You're a good guy. I can see that. And then uh, he's like, have you ever thought of, like, you know, letting Jesus Christ in your life? And I thought, oh, no. Like, he's just going to pound this into me. But I, I really like this guy, you know. And he told me his life is full and he's, like, happy with his wife. And all the other stuff means nothing to him. And he, and he just got a new show when I met him. That's what we're training for. And so... It made me think, and then right after that was Christmas was coming up. So I Googled Christmas service, like late, you know, candlelight service, and the church in San Marino, San Marino Community Church came up. I remember getting ready for it. I was so nervous, and I kept thinking the whole time, oh, they're going to know that I'm a total phony. Like, I haven't been. I was more scared than I was when we were going on that hit or when Manny was trying to get me or even when, uh, when I fought, like when I got in the cage. We walked in, and I was like, oh, my knees were weak. The minute that the music, like everything started, I felt like everything changed inside of me. I felt like the Holy Spirit come into me. And I went, when I heard the service, all the words meant something at that point. And it was exactly like he was speaking to me. And, I mean, we went back that next Sunday. We went back on New Year's right after that Sunday. And then we started Bible study right after that. And... That is when I just decided that I needed to change my life. I got sent an email from my mother-in-law because my father-in-law has Parkinson's. And I came back and I've been training now for almost eight months, my father-in-law, and you can see a, a remarkable difference. So I've, I've been using my training to not only train him, but some other older people and I've gotten their balance better, gotten their strength up. And then I've also used it to to get in and mentor younger people because they might not listen to me or anyone else when we're just doing anything. But when I'm, when I'm showing them boxing and we're just working out, they'll start to tell me about like what's going on in the school or why they did something, why they got into trouble. And then I'll just throw in my two cents and then I'll be quiet. And then they kind of see by the way I live and the way I act that there's a different way. My main thing when I was, I was scared about moving was if I'm, if I'm gonna be able to find a church or not. 
you know, she's like, well, don't worry, don't worry, we'll find one. And uh, when I first came here, we passed this church on the freeway coming here. And she said, that's where I used to go, Manuka Bible, we should go there. And actually, I think my youth pastor is the, the head pastor now. I came here, right when I came here, I knew that this was the place where I wanted to be. And we decided, another decision that day, that we're going to stay here. And that's why we're here. And that's why we joined. Mm. <clears throat> now I know Kenji's story is just like yours. <laughs> but it is kind of. Every single one of us are dead in our sin. We have no hope in ourselves. But Jesus intervened in that and gave us new life. So you, even if you have the most boring story on planet Earth, if you're in Christ, you sit down and you share a conversation face-to-face -face with Kenji and you have connection. You know who knows Kenji's story? His real life group. You know how they know that? because they have a face-to-face -face interaction that Jesus authored for them. They're going through life together. So as we're exiting here, that's, that's the emphasis. That's the challenge I want you guys to take up, is to actually step into that. And, so, and, and as a people, for us to do exactly that. Two, follow Christ's strategy lived out at NBC, finding a group. I don't care which group it is, but finding a group and faithfully connecting with it. And then, looking at your world and saying, who in my world is, they may be a believer, but they, they're not connected with a face-to-face -face opportunity to interact. They, they come here, they're faithful here, but, but they're not face-to-face. -face. So as you're leaving, there's that weird table out there. It's like a, a triangle table. There's a bunch of real-life group um, things that meet all throughout the week. I want to encourage you to go over there and take a look. They're currently going through a series, a two-year series that we as a church are developing on everything that we need to know as followers of of God. So teaching theology over two years, but, but taught kind of NBC's wave through NBC's people. At, at this church, we believe in groups like all the way down to like the little kiddos up at every, every stage of life that God has called us into a group where we can have that face-to-face -face interaction from uh, Adventure Outpost for the nursery kids all the way up to LifeBridge, which is 55 plus that there are groups where you can have an opportunity to surround yourself with scripture and prayer and have a face-to-face -face interaction with people. That, that, that's what God has called us into, and so we do that. And, and we also have things at NBC that's more specific. And you've heard about some of these, like Celebrate Recovery that meets on Thursday nights and Reengage that's just going to be kicking off in, on Tuesday nights. Celebrate Recovery is for people who have hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Another way of saying that is Celebrate Recovery is for people who breathe, okay? If you are a breathing, living human being, you have issues, like me, okay? And you have issues like you. Celebrate Recovery is one of the places that helps you say, I could be honest. Church is not a place where we put on the fake and we pretend like everything's good. And if you ask me how I'm doing, I'm going to tell you it's okay. And you're going to believe me because you saw me at church. Celebrate Recovery and Reengage are two things that help. Uh, these are two of the most important things that have happened in NBC's life in the past five years. And the reason that they're so important is because of the fact that they push us to say, no, we are going to be authentic and real about the fact that we have growth to do. So I would encourage you to check out Celebrate Recovery, check out Reengage. You can sign up for Reengage. All the things that I've just mentioned um, are hyperlinked in your notes, um, either in your physical notes or in, on the app. You can actually go to the website from the app. Here's what I want to close with. 
We really, really, really are, as human beings created to be better together. Within the church, that is put at an emphasis. Jesus is literally the face of God. Jesus literally was face, the face of God and he had a face-to-face interaction with his disciples and he modeled something that sometimes we forget. But if you're a Christian, here's the thing. You're gonna get a chance to see Jesus face-to-face one day. I can't wait to see Jesus face-to-face. Some days more than others, I can't wait to see Jesus face-to-face. Wishing it was today, you know? But until then, you and I have a gift. And the gift is that we get a chance to go through life with the bride of Christ, other believers, and we're called to have an authentic relationship with each other, which means that we go through life when things are really, really painful and when things are awesome and everything in between. We weren't created to do this alone. We were created to do this together. Let us be that kind of church. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks uh, for the fact that you came up with something that kicks us out of anonymity and pushes us into real relationship. I pray that you help, that, help us have a relational rhythm of life that constantly makes us less and less satisfied with the crowd and pushes us deeper into a core of a community. And Lord, I pray that that community is one that's defined by love, forgiveness, grace, and truth that you've established for us. I pray, God, as we leave this place, you'll have that on our heart, on our mind, and you'll put it into action. We'll give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Happy hunting out there in the atrium, finding a group.